Technology can be your best friend or make you want to scream. That's all right. That's all right. This morning, we're kicking off a new series uh, called Family Matters. And my, fam- my favorite show growing up was Family Matters. Every Friday night, we'd watch that. And I spent at least two hours trying to find a cool clip to show right now, and I couldn't find one. So I just had to talk about it. That was just lame, but anyway. So we're doing a, a series called Family Matters. Next week, we're going to be looking at it's Mother's Day. We're going to be looking at parenting, gospel-centered parenting, and, and motherhood, that sort of thing. Then um, the following week, two weeks from today, we're going to look at gospel-centered marriage and sexuality, and I reserve the right to change my mind on that one, uh, but I don't think I'm going to. And then the last week is gospel-centered remar- or divorce and remarriage. Not that the gospel, we're just going to look at what the gospel, how the gospel works when divorce and remarriage happens. And so that's where we're going um, over the next few weeks in this series called Family Matters. But today... We're going to look at an issue that we all deal with in our family, which that's that's kind of tough because there's so much diversity when it comes to our families, almost as much diversity as there are people in here. I mean, we have young kids, some of us and others have old kids. Some people, when you talk about their, your, your family, good memories or good feelings come to the top. Others, it's negative. There's negative feelings. There's there's negative uh, History, there's negative thoughts that come to your mind. There's families that have, that she has kids, he has kids, and then they have kids, his, hers, and ours. There's families that are being uh, led by one parent, a mom, maybe, dad, and other circumstances, situations. There's just so much diversity. No matter who you are, you bring a certain idea, a certain mindset, a certain history. To this topic, the family. Not only that, but when you look at the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament, there's almost no good examples of families. Think about the very beginning, Adam and Eve. They're created by the, the Creator God. They're living in perfect harmony with God. And then Adam chooses Eve over God Himself. Then they have kids. Their oldest son, Cain, kills their second-born son, Abel. I don't know about you, but I don't want to take my cues from that family. Look at the pinnacle of history, of, of Israeli history, of Israel's history. King David, the best king in the history of the nation. He started a civil war by going to battle against his own son. Thousands of people lost their lives. Civil war broke out in that nation. Because a dad went to war against his own son. Crazy story. You should read your Bible. But I don't know about you. I don't want to take my cues from that family. So if you read through the whole Old Testament, if you read through the Bible, there's almost no good examples of family. So when you take the diversity in the background that everybody brings and you look at the scriptures and there's no real good examples, it makes this topic very, very difficult. To talk about. Because of our diversity. Because there's no examples. Really in the Old Testament. Or in the New Testament for that matter. So. As I was thinking about this subject. I began to think. What do we all have in common? And I came up with two things. They're kind of lame. But two things that we all have in common. The first one is this. 
None of us picked our family of origin. Nobody picked which family you were born into. Now, for some of you, that's a good thing. Some of you, you're glad that that's the case because you love your mom, you love your dad, they pointed you to Christ, they, were, they gave you the things that you needed, you grew up in a great home. You're glad that you couldn't pick your family because if you could, you couldn't have picked a better one. Now, for others of you, that's a negative. I mean, if God had given you a choice, you'd have picked the family down the street because you didn't like your mom, you didn't like your dad. It was a negative environment that you grew up in. And so... Whether it's good, whether it's bad, we didn't pick our family of origin. The second thing that we have in common, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning. No matter what your family is like, good, bad, or ugly, there is conflict in your family. There was either conflict yesterday, there will be conflict today, or there's going to be conflict in the future. You cannot get around it. Conflict is something that's going to happen in your family. And so this morning, that's what I want to talk about. Conflict. Now, when I was, when I was uh, preparing for this, I, I was thinking of different ways that, conflicts, that conflict happens. And these are the, 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 these are the ways that we deal with conflict. Uh, it's obviously not a, a complete list, but these are the lists. This is the list that I came up with. I was wondering what was going on. I'm, I'm glad I could turn around. I thought my zipper was down or something. <laughs> Man, it's good. So these are the ways that we deal with conflict. The first one is this: you're a pacifist. I mean, you don't deal with with conflict at all. I mean, sure you were wrong. You did wrong to somebody else. You committed a wrong against somebody else, but you pretend it didn't happen. I mean, you're just a pacifist. It's just, yes, everything's okay. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to go on as if everything's normal. You will not confront confront conflict at all. That's the first way. The second way is this. Um, the second one is a sulker. I mean, it's all over. You're just kind of moping around, your head's down, and people are like, is everything okay? Yes, okay. Well, you're not acting like, well, I'm okay. And you just sulk all day long. So you have a, a pacifist, you have a sulker. The second one says a stuffer. You okay? Yes. Yes, I'm okay. Yes. You just stuff it. You don't ever talk about it. You just stuff the conflict down. Well, you're, you don't have, well I'm okay. I'm just telling you, I'm okay. That's a stuffer. Another one's this. Um, litigator. These are the best arguers. I mean, they've never lost an argument. They, they position themselves in a way that they always win the argument. And if you're honest, if you're a litigator and you're honest with yourself... You win not because you're the best arguer, but because you are always right. I mean, it's not, it's not that I think I'm always right. It's that I am right. In the most humble way possible, of course. But you still think you're always right. And you'll even go to places that are off limits. Things that have been dealt with that you should never go to. You'll go there if that's what it takes to win an argument. And your family never wants to argue with you because they know they're going to lose. Because you're going to be able to, to get an angle, find an angle to win the argument. I know, I know this, how this is. I grew up with a litigator. There's another one, a yeller. And you may not make any sense, but by golly, you're going to be the loudest one in the argument. I mean, yell, yell, yell. I know how this is. I grew up with one too. And I'm not going to tell you what Mary Jo is, and I'm not going to tell you what I am. I'll get in trouble for that, and I don't want you to know what I do, how I argue. But if you ask her, she'll probably tell you. So, 
And maybe that's not all of them. But that's, those are the, the kind of ways that I've come across, the kind of people I've come across in the way that they argue. Funny story, my, my history teacher in 12th grade, his name was Mr. Bolden. And he had eight, or his, his wife, his eventual wife, grew up with eight sisters. There were nine girls. Dad wanted a boy, and they kept trying after nine, he said, I'm done. And so, uh, the, way, uh, the way that Mr. Bolden's family dealt with conflict was there was stuffers and there were pacifists. There was no arguing, there was no conflict ever dealt, dealt with in his family. They would go days without talking. But there was never any arguing, there was never really any face-to-face conflict. Well, his, he goes to college, meets his eventual wife, and they begin to date. Their very first, um, uh, after the, his very first time to go visit her family, she's the oldest, so there are ten girls, the nine girls, mom, and two guys in a 12-passenger van. Eleven people, 12-passenger van, and he's telling our whole class this story. And um, nine of the ten girls dealt with conflict as yellows. Well, they, he goes to visit for the weekend. They're going to dinner on Friday night. They're in the car, and an argument breaks out. Conflict. Nine people are yelling at each other. There's nine screamers. He said, and I remember sitting on the back row of that van thinking, I am watching this family fall apart <laughs> right before my eyes. And then the second thing he thought was, demons are in this car. He said, and it amazed me because by the time we got to the restaurant, everything was fine. They were best friends again. He said, in my house, we would go days with conflict. Quiet, you know, the silent treatment. They'd get it all out. I thought it was going to dissolve, but they were best friends by the time we got there. Here's the thing. No matter how you deal with conflict, Maybe you're a crier, maybe you're not any of these. No matter how you deal with conflict, the thing that you cannot walk out of here saying is, my family doesn't have it. Because we all face conflict. We all face it in different ways. We deal with it in different ways. But we all have it. Especially when it comes to our family. And so, the question this morning is, how do you deal with that? How do you live in that tension? And I'm not smart enough to tell you, but the writer James is. James is, is the brother of Jesus. He, it's the most practical book probably in the, in the New Testament, maybe in the Bible. And basically it asks and answers this question. What does a life look like that has been radically changed by Jesus? You have come in contact with the Savior of the world. You've given your life to Christ. You've humbled yourself. You've repented of your sins. You've been saved. What does that life look like on the ground that's being transformed by Jesus a little bit more into his image each and every day? That's the question that James asks and then subsequently answers. And the good thing for us this morning is one of the issues that he deals with is conflict. What is a life or what do, what do families, what do relationships that are in conflict look like? When they're being, when your desire is to look more like Christ as a result and at the end of it. And so this morning we're going to look at James chapter 3, the last verse, and then the first few verses of chapter 4. As we look at this issue 
of conflict in the family. But before we jump in, let's pray. Father, this morning, as we look at conflict from your word, I pray that families would be more peaceful as a result. That we would look for the answers to our conflict, maybe in places we've never looked for it before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. James chapter 3, last verse, chapter verse 18, it says this. Verse 18, it says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now he uses that word righteousness. It's probably the most important word in all of the New Testament. And all it means is to have a right standing, to make right, to be put right, for a relationship to be good. I mean, we're just good. We're, we're in a right relationship with each other. We're, we're in a right place together. There's no tension. There's no conflict. We're just good with each other. Now, in the, in the New Testament, that's used in two different ways. There's a lexicon range in the, in, in the English language. And when I was studying this, I found this. There's a lexicon range. And there, one end of the range is peace or righteousness or right standing with God. The other end of the spectrum is a right standing with others. In the New Testament, when this word righteousness is used, sometimes it means to have a right standing, to be put right with God. Other times in the New Testament, when this word righteousness is used, it's in the context of relationships between people. James uses it for both in this circumstance. He says, what is a relationship? What is a right standing? What does it mean to be put right with God and with other people look like? The, the wide range of righteousness... Between God and yourself, between you and others. What does that look like? And he answers it right there. He says, he uses this imagery of, of, of a farm, of farming. He says, you're going to water, you're going to plant, you're going to sow, you're going to water. And you're going to harvest in peace. You're going to live a life of peace. That is what a righteous person looks like. A person that has a right standing with God. A person that has a right standing with others. Now the advantage that we have when it comes to our relationship with God and our standing with Him is that Jesus did it on our behalf. And it was done perfectly. So we can have a perfect relationship, a perfect standing before God. Not because of anything that I've done. Not because of how good my heart is. It's a wicked heart. Not because of all the good things I've done. I haven't done that many. And even if I had, if I've only done one thing wrong, it's not a right standing with God. Because his standard is perfection. And so all the New Testament says, you can have a right standing with God. You can have a relationship with God. Not based on yourself, but based on Jesus. And so that's how we can have a right standing with God. But when it comes to other people, we have Jesus that's, uh, that's in our relationship, that's working in our families. But he's not the, the, he does, he's not the bridge between our relationships like he is with God. He's working, he's developing us, he's working in our lives, the Holy Spirit's making us more into his image. But the way that that happens on both sides, and in both relationships, is peace. You cultivate a life of peace. Now, it's different from passivity. It's different from the pacifist that we talked about. This, this peace that I'm talking about, that the scriptures are talking about, confronts sin when there's sin. When there's problems there, it confronts it, but it does so in a peaceful way. Sometimes conflict is good. Sometimes it needs to happen. 
But a person that is righteous, a person that's looking more like Christ each and every day, is constantly cultivating peace. So when they have to confront, they can do so in a way that is peaceful. Well, that's all well and good. Except for I'm not that good. I don't always plant, sow, water, and harvest in peace. I'm simply not that good. Sin has invaded my life too deeply. Sure, I've been saved by it, but I still battle with the Bible says. And so while the, the standard is perfect peace, on this side of heaven, I'm never going to reach there. And so the result is conflict comes into our relationships. And the question is why? And I'm glad you asked that because James addresses it in the next chapter. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. It says this, what causes those quarrels? I mean, there shouldn't be quarrels if you're cultivating peace perfectly, but where nobody's that good. Nobody can do that. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, if I was to ask you that question in any other setting, you would come up to my office and I was to say, hey, husband, hey, wife, what is causing quarrels among you? Your answer would be the same as my answer. They are. I mean, if they would just see the world from my perspective, they would just listen to me the way they should, there wouldn't be any fights, there wouldn't be any quarrels. But for some reason, they don't see the world from my perspective all the time. And so the result is, they're the reason, they're the, the, the one that's at fault, they're the reason that there are fights, they're the reason that we quarrel. It's them. Maybe it's your dad. Dad, dad doesn't uh, see things from my perspective. He's the, he's the reason. He's the one that's at fault. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's your wife. And you always want to point blame. Whenever quarrels, whenever fights start, it's always their fault. It's them. That's how I want to answer the question. I'm never the one at wrong. But I'm never the one that's at fault. It's always their fault. It was my parents' fault, my brother's fault, my kids' fault, my wife's fault. It's them. When there's fights, when there's quarrels, what causes that is them. But that's not what James says. Look at the rest of that, or the next verse down. Uh, the rest of that verse, I'm sorry. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, isn't this what causes the quarrels? You have desires. You have passions. You have expectations. And they're not being met. And the result is they're at war within you. They're at war inside of you. He goes on in the next verse. And he says this in verse 2. I have to read it. Here we go. Verse 2, it says this. You desire and do not have. Stop right there. You have desires. And you don't, and they're not met. You have expectations. And they're not met. I have, I have certain things that I expect to happen. I have certain expectations of that person. And they're not being met. I, I want that person to do certain things. Whoever that person is. Mom, dad. 
brother, sister, mom, dad, mother-in-law, I don't care who it is. I have certain expectations of them, and they're not meeting them. So you murder. Now, the tendency is to believe that he's speaking in hyperbole. I mean, after all, he is speaking to believers, to Christians, in a church just like you and I are here this morning. And so it's easy to dismiss this as hyperbole. But remember back in Matthew when Jesus is talking, and he says if there's any anger, unrighteous anger in you, if you have any anger in you that is unrighteous, that doesn't point people to Christ, that's not, uh, that you're not, that there's things that you get angry at, that Jesus would not get angry at. Then not only are you angry, but you're also a murderer. The standard has been raised to such a level that I will never meet it. And that you will never meet it. And that's exactly what James is drawing on here. He says, you have expectations that you want to be met. And they're not being met. So you get angry. And the exact same result is that you are now considered a murderer in God's eyes. I have expectations of my loved ones, of my family, and they're not being met. So I get angry. And the punishment for that is exactly the same punishment as those who take the life of another person. Well, this morning you're saying, whoa, 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 wait, Scott. I mean, I understand what you're saying, that, that I have expectations that are not being met, but my expectations are not Unreasonable. I mean, after all, I went to the altar and I said I do, and I said I do until death do me part. And he said the same thing, and he didn't fulfill it. You're right, I had an expectation he would stay around until I died or until he died, and he didn't fill it because he promised me. I'm not saying that your expectations are bad. In fact, so many times your expectations are good, but. The controversy, the conflict, the arguing started, the source of it, James says, starts inside of me. It starts inside of you. It, it started inside of me. I had an expectation. It wasn't an ungodly expectation. It wasn't a wrong expectation. In fact, it was a good expectation. But it still started inside of me. And when that expectation wasn't met, I got mad. And the result was, I have to pay the price, the same price as somebody who murders an individual. Practically speaking, and this is just from me, when a, the temperature starts to rise in your house, when there's about to be a throwdown, I mean, drop down, drag out fight, the yellows are coming out. Practically speaking, and this is just for me to think it for what it's worth. What if, before it started to get too intense, you said, whoa, 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 wait, just a minute. Loved one, dad, mom, wait just a minute. I have an expectation of you that you're not meeting. Maybe you put it like this. You know, you know what part of the problem is, is right now? You, you, you want to know what part of the problem is right now? You want to know part of why we're quarreling, why we're fighting? I'm not getting what I want. I have an expectation of you 
I expect you to, to respond and to act in a certain way. And I'm not getting what I want from you. Wouldn't that take the temperature down about 10 degrees in that fight? Like I said, sometimes your expectations are not even bad. But we're going to see what happens and why that is the case. That this is still, it still starts. It still restores. It's still the genesis of it is inside of me and inside of you. It's never their fault. It always starts with me. Go on in verse 2. It says this. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You have desires, you have wants, you have expectations, and they're not being met. But the reason that this fight is starting is because I'm not getting what I want. Even if it's righteous, even if it's holy, I'm not getting what I want. Look at how it goes on and why I can say, even if it's righteous, even if it's holy, even if it's a a right expectation, it still starts with me. Here's why. The bottom of verse 2, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. And a lot of versions say you do not ask God. I actually like that better because here's the thing. Your expectations that you are projecting on those that you love, be it your mom or your dad, or your husband, or your wife, your parents, your in-laws, whoever they are, whatever those expectations are that you are projecting onto them, that you desire onto them, that you have asked from them, they will never, ever be able to measure up to that request. You, I, I, Husbands, you won't respect. In fact, you'll demand it from your wife. Your wife will never Ever. She does not have the ability to give you the respect that you desire and that you need. There's only one person that you can ask for that. And that's God according to the Bible. Husbands, you just want to be loved by your wife. You want your wife to love you. You want your wife to, to put you first. She can never love you that well. You're asking the wrong person. For that kind of love. You want to be loved? It's because you're not asking God. You want to be respected? It's because you're not asking God. And God would say, you, don't, you want to be respected? I showed you the, the, the ultimate respect. When I sent my son to live uh, on this law, uh, to live on this earth perfectly. And at the end of his life, he stretched out his arms and he allowed nails to be Driven into his hands. You want to be loved? You want to see what love looks like, wife? Let me show you what love looks like. Love looks like a perfect sacrifice stretching out his arm and allowing his hands and his and his feet to be nailed to the, the cross. You want to see what respect looks like? You want to see what being heard looks like? Let me show you what being heard looks like. Being heard looks like a perfect sacrifice stretching out his arms. And allowing his hands and his, and his feet to be nailed into a cross. When he was guiltless. 
Whatever the source of your conflict. I keep coming back to respect and love. Because those are the two um, those are the two things that are kind of at the, the heart of most marriage conflict. But whatever it is that you're arguing about, whatever it is, whatever expectation you have of the one that you love, and they're not meeting it, it's because they can't. They will never be that good. They will never be that righteous. They will never have perfect peace. And they will never, ever, ever measure up to what it is that you need and that I need. The reason that you don't have it, the reason that you're in constant conflict, the reason that you dread going home at 5 o'clock in the afternoon is because you're asking the wrong person. And even when you ask that person, look at verse 3, you do it with the wrong motives. It says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It says even when you turn around and ask God, you do it selfishly. I want to be respected because I'm worth respect. I want to be loved because I'm worth love. And you're, you're asking with the wrong motives. You're so sinful. It's, it's, your sin has infected you and affected you so badly, you cannot even ask appropriately. You cannot even ask rightly. But the cool thing is, and the message of the gospel is found in verse 6, what it says, but he offers grace. He offers grace. It's up there. It says he gives, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God closes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So this morning, if your life is characterized by constant conflict, and I'm not saying that mine's not, I have preached to myself a lot this week. I've demanded things of people that they can never give. So when the temperature begins to rise, I'm going to say, I'm not getting what I want. The source of this problem, the genesis of it, is me. Because I'm demanding something of you that you can never provide for me. It's only found when I ask God for it. And even when I ask God for it, I'm going to do it wrong. I'm not going to be perfect in my motives. I'm not going to be perfect in, in what I'm asking. But there's grace. And what grace means is that even when you do it wrong, it's counted to you as right. And that is awesome. I can ask selfishly, but God says, even though you've asked selfishly, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to count it. I'm going to. Account it to you as if you asked it righteously. I'm going to account it to you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you credit in teacher's terms. I'm going to give you credit for asking appropriately because there's grace. When I come and I ask the one who can give what I need, even what I demand. So this week, when the temperature begins to rise... In your house. If you'd say, oh, hold on just a second. I got an expectation of you. 
and that's my fault. I'm demanding something of you that you're never going to be able to provide, and that starts with me. I think your house will be a place of refuge and a place of peace because there's grace. Let's let pray. Father, this week, I'm sure there's been families that have been in constant conflict. And I pray that by the power of your scriptures, by the power of your words, that that would change. Because we find our expectations, we find our worth, we find our identity ultimately in you. It's not in those around us, even our family who loves us. But we find it in you. And when we come to you, we ask, even if we do it wrongly, it's counted to us as right. Because there's grace. So Lord, I pray this week, the temperature would decrease in the homes of people that are here this morning. That they, that one person would have the courage to say, you know what's going on here? It starts with me. I'm going to take ownership of this because I'm demanding something that can never be delivered by you. I know this is a tough topic for some because they had a mom that didn't care. Abandoned them. They never knew what love looked like. But they could find that love at the foot of the cross. Maybe it's a dad. There was no conflict with dad because he wasn't even around. But they could find that worth at the foot of the cross this morning. 